Hello and welcome to this episode of the Janes Podcast. I'm Terry Patar. I lead the Janes Intelligence Unit. With me on this episode, I've got Nick Waters of Bellingcat, and I'll get Nick to introduce himself, but we brought him onto the podcast essentially to talk us through one of his recent case studies uh, where he did some analysis on the explosion in Beirut in the port. Nick, thanks for joining me. Give us a bit of a, a backstory to yourself and explain how you got into open source intelligence and you know how you got to the point where you're at now working with Bellingcat, etc. Yeah, sure. Firstly, thanks very much for, for having me on. In terms of how I got here, it's quite a long and convoluted route. So I was in the army. I was an officer in the rifles. I was in Afghanistan in 2014, and I decided I wasn't really having the effect I wanted. Um, you know, withdrawing, closing down, it wasn't really doing much that I felt was having any kind of like beneficial impact. Um, so I left the army, went to do a master's at KCL. And when I was doing this master's, I did one of the modules in open source intelligence. And Elliot Higgins lectured on that course, really loved what he showed and also all the other ideas that are on that, that course too. And uh, in 2016, I published my first piece of work on, on Bellingcat and I continued to publish with them as part of the investigations team until 2018 when I started working with them uh, full time. And yeah, during the intervening two years, I worked doing a little bit of cyber threat intelligence for a couple of years for just commercial companies and for a, for a bank. And so how much does your background in the army, does that come into play in terms of when you're looking at some of the open source intelligence you're working on now? Does that help at all in terms of the knowledge and experience you built up from that? No, absolutely. Definitely it does. <laughs> so one of the key methods that we use is geolocation um, and it is basically map reading in reverse. So you're looking at a video and trying to work it out or work out where it happened on a map or so on satellite imagery, for example. It's generally what you do when you're map reading, just kind of back to front a little bit. There's that kind of skill. Um, there's also weapons effects as well. So, you know, I know what a grenade explosion looks like. I know what a aerial bomb explosion looks like. I recognize different types of weapon systems and the effects they have. So, yeah, a lot of the, the skills are transferred or have transferred over from the army into the work that I do now. Interesting. OK. And in terms of the incident we saw in Beirut, so this was obviously the huge explosion, which got a lot of news and media attention. You know, when you saw that happen, um, and obviously the devastating consequences and after effects of it, what was your immediate response? Or, or you know, how, how did you go about sort of looking at that and saying, OK, look, well, let's figure out what's actually happened here. And, and what did you do? And how, talk us through the case, basically. Yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty clear something huge had happened in Beirut. So a lot of my previous work has been uh, related to the Middle East, so Syria and Yemen. And so a lot of people connected to those areas also usually are connected to Beirut. There's a whole network uh, of journalists, activists, lawyers and so on who who move between those places. And so these images and videos started popping up on my timeline on Twitter very, very quickly, very, very quickly. Um, and it pretty became clear that the explosion was absolutely devastating. Um, it was clearly a very, very, very large explosion. And it became pretty obvious that it was important to try and work out what this was. Um in the aftermath of these kind of incidents, you tend to find that rumours start flying around. There's that the kind of infamous phrase, lies can run around the world before the truth got their boots on. And so really what you start doing in these incredibly confusing situations is trying to collating or try to collate as much information as possible, images and videos, and try and get some kind of situational awareness of what's actually happened and when. Um, so that's really what I started doing, collecting as many of these uh, videos and images as possible to try and establish yeah, a rough timeline of what what actually happened what blew up etc and when you say sort of collecting all of that is that using are you using any particular capture tools or anything like that to to gather that and, and archive it because with a lot of that content it can be quite ephemeral sometimes i mean yeah 
Um, I would describe our approach as artisanal. Uh, so <laughs> the best approach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So rather than trying to scrape huge amounts of data and then look through it, I'll try and identify the information that I know to be relevant as quickly as possible. Um, so I'll look for specific keywords that are of interest, hashtags are of interest, um, specific nodes in the information network that I know will collate this information, assess what is interesting, and then retweet it or, or tweet it out. Um, so for example, you have, there was one guy who was just collecting all the different videos and linking to them in this one massive thread. And so, you know, I'm, I'm using this network to try and identify where the useful information is rather than doing that work myself. And then, well, the thing is, with the Beirut case, there was pretty much everything you're looking at was useful anyway. Um, really, the only issue was repeat videos. But because there are so many videos, you know, it's the middle of a massive city. Uh, that really wasn't actually that much of an issue. Um, pretty much everything I was looking at was useful anyway. Um, yeah. And were you very quickly able to sift out the repeat videos where you could see, actually, this is one I've seen already. Move on. Look at the next one. Yeah, so I, I may have trouble like remembering people's faces and names, but for some reason, if I see something visually, I'm very, very good at remembering it. So yeah, I tend to, that tends to be something that I'm quite, quite good at. Um, I, I think I must have probably that day watched maybe just under a couple of hundred videos, I think, you know, ranging from like a couple of seconds to a couple of minutes. How did you go about then sort of piecing together, right, what's actually happened here? And what other information, apart from that visual content, did you need to start pulling together and, and how did you you go about doing all of that and so first thing i'd really try and establish is is a very rough timeline of events actually the very first post about explosions happening in beirut which i noticed was actually one of the initial explosions so ready had that uh and a couple of other posts saying hey there's been an explosion in beirut um before the the huge one so it's clear like there was a series of explosions before this gigantic one um it was it became pretty it became quite important to work out what it actually caused this explosion because, um, you know, it's Beirut. Uh, you have Syria next door. You have Israel to the south. Um, you have people saying this is Israeli airstrike. There was a sound of jets overhead. People saying the sound of jets overhead, uh, which we later established was actually the sound of the fire shortly before it actually exploded. Um, so you're trying to place all these images and videos into a timeline to create a coherent sequence of events so you can understand how the situation has developed. And so things like how the fire has developed, um, where the fire actually is, because, you know, once it's kind of, uh, if it starts at one end of a warehouse and it goes to the other end of the warehouse, um, you know, you can look at some videos and say, actually, you know, the fire is actually still in the north. Wrong, I beg your pardon. Yeah, no, north edge of the warehouse hasn't gone further south. This must be an earlier video, for example. Um, yeah. Interesting. Okay. And so building that timeline out, did you end up going down any uh, rabbit holes or areas where you, you sort of were misled by some of the information you saw? Like you mentioned there, the sound that people were reporting of, of jets overhead. You know, was that something that you then had to investigate and figure out actually were there jets? And so one of the benefits of or the fact that this explosion took place in the middle of a massive city meant that, as I already mentioned, we have loads and loads of video content for this uh, event from all different angles of the compass, south, north, east, west, from the sea, looking up, looking down. None of them showed any jets. Uh, you know, there are people who are very close to the event and nobody appears to have filmed uh, a jet at all. Um, 
when you combine that with people describing the sound as sounding like a low flying jet, you know, like jet engines going just overhead, the idea that there could be hundreds of videos and images showing this incident and not a single one of them caught a jet uh, means that that scenario became very unlikely in my mind the more I watched these images and videos. Um, so that's what we wrote in the initial piece. And then we did a follow up piece a couple of days later, like looking at the fakes um, and some of the questions uh, that related to the incident. And we wanted to make sure we actually got this, you know, got the facts correct. So when we looked at this, the sound of the jets, especially when we're looking at videos closer to the blast, uh, it became evident that there are a series. And when I say series, I mean like hundreds of very small explosions, um, which may have been fireworks um, shortly before the last explosion. And those increased in tempo to the point where it became a roar that sounded like a jet. So, you know, I was talking to senior journalists on the ground who also heard this sound just before the explosion. And I made sure to check with them, you know, is this consistent with your personal experience on the ground as well? Um, because this kind of investigation, this open source investigation is always um, can be maximized in terms of its power and authority by actually talking to the people on the ground as well, obviously. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's not just about gathering information online. It's about actually trying to contact those people that you you, you knew and, and, you know, perhaps others, eyewitnesses, et cetera, that you can find and find out more about what they witnessed rather than just what they posted or shared online. Um, yeah. So I think kind of like a few years ago, maybe 2015, 2016, it was almost when people were doing this as a hobby. I mean, you know, I was doing this as a volunteer until 2018. Um, I think people regarded it almost as cheating to you know, talk to people <laughs> who were there or like, um, whereas now it is very clear that if you combine, <laughs> it sounds, it's a really obvious thing to say, but like if you combine the knowledge of people who are actually there as well as uh, an open source analyst, uh, you can combine that to create much better information flows. Um, you know, so for example, with our, our Skripal uh, investigations, Bellingcat Skripal investigations, you know, uh, we were working with uh, the Insider, which is a Russian publication, which did a lot of work on the ground, investigative work on the ground as well. Um, and our success um, was as a result of both Bellingcat's work and the Insider's work. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, combining the two together can be very powerful. That's really interesting because I know that was something that um, yeah we had Elliot Higgins on the uh, this podcast before and we talked about the difference between open source intelligence in that more traditional sense that you hear governments and you know uh, military OSINT practitioners referring to it where it is very much the you know desk based research largely you know it's it's not necessarily going as far as talking to people whereas what you guys are doing at Bellingcat and I thought you know the, the way Elliot's framed it and that you guys talk about it is, is is brilliant in that it's open source investigative journalism you know it, it is that added, added element of being able to call people up and talk to them and find out what's going on and and get those eyewitness reports as well which for a lot of open source intelligence practitioners working in government agencies or you know militaries um they don't have that option and so they're always relying on much more partial information you know there's there's always going to be that gap so uh, it's interesting to hear how you talk, you're able to bridge that gap and go out and talk to people and or get on the phone and find out, you know, more from them. I think it's a really interesting point because our default compared to, say, you know, compared to the military or government and even mm. compared to other investigative journalists is, is mm. openness. Um, you know, as again, this comes from, you know, a few years ago, a lot of this being hobbyists doing it online, everyone wanted to share the information. And so it's a much more 
a different uh, culture within open source analysts, open source journalists, because we're much more likely to share information, which allows is it, faster information is, flow. Yeah. Is that culture of transparency? Is, it, is that what it is that they know when some, someone talks to you, they know what you're going to do with the information because they've seen other case studies or whatever that you've produced and they've got that trust that, you know, you're going to be using it for an aim that there's no deception there, basically. Yes. So that certainly plays part of it. And that's one of the reasons why the methodology is so open. You know, we talk people through how we established or reached our conclusions. Um, but there's also like this element of competition there, too. Um you want to show what you have done. You want to show what information you have discovered again because of this, you know, if you're on say, Twitter or something, you want to show your followers, hey, look, I'm I'm awesome. I've done this. Uh, <laughs> and that, that actually really does help in terms of like the information flow so that uh, people are more informed and so uh, you're able to draw conclusions more effectively because more people know more information. Yeah, so by putting information out there, you're able to attract information back. Yeah, exactly. It's a it's a culture of sharing. But I mean, like we have uh, I'll frequently talk with people from other organizations like Pax for Peace, uh, like New York Times, NBC, like people who have previously, you know, you regard or maybe other in other cultures you regard as competitors. But for me, they're just other people doing this kind of work. And, you know, maybe if I find like a really, really massive scoop, I might you know, keep that one for myself. But in general, <laughs> I share information to because it's interesting and because actually for me like one of the most important things is making sure that the facts are described accurately i'd happily give up on any credit if a story is like as factually accurate as possible um that that is really a thing that kind of that inspires me trying to get things as accurate as possible i suppose by putting it out there you're basically crowdsourcing and fact checking in a way or the, or you know you know that if somebody's got something that disagrees with that then they're going to flag it up to you yeah yeah no absolutely that happens too so you know if, if someone says hey nick actually i don't think that's correct i think that they might actually be you know wrong um you know i'll, I'll sit down and listen because this person probably knows what they're talking about um so yes that that does play a part too mm. and so thinking back to that so the, the beirut piece i mean you're obviously wading through all this information trying to piece together the timeline bit of events working out what's going on um and then sort of where do you go next what what, what, what and, and you're obviously confirming the information with people you're speaking to on the ground you know what what, what did you do then in terms of the next stage and, and where did your workflow go there mm -hmm. so initially we wanted to get out just this open source survey as quickly as possible um it was clear well, it was clear that there was a lot of confusion that was around not many people actually knew really what had happened there are reports of like multiple different explosions um, whereas I'd only seen footage from, I beg your pardon, footage from one. Um, so we started putting that together into an article, um, laid out how we did it, um, what our conclusions were, um, and then published it. I think we managed to publish it on the or the initial piece on the first day and then update it the morning after. Um, so yeah, we managed to get out quite quickly. Um, and yeah got quite a good reaction or we got a very good reaction in terms of you know people saying how, how useful this was uh, collating all the information together um yeah and then we started looking at the or going into more depth and looking at some of the fakes that started emerging but that's a little bit further on right right and so putting out that initial report i guess that was more about this as you said describing what's happened giving that assessment that this does look like a huge industrial accident rather than being 
you know, what some people may have been spreading rumors about or resharing or posts on, on social media saying, well, we heard some jets and we think this could have been, you know, some sort of military activity or whatever, or something from a you know militant group. There's all kinds of, you know, in, in, I guess in that environment where it's been at the heart of conflicts previously and where you've got these different competing factions, etc., there's always going to be that immediate suspicion that somebody's behind this and that it's a deliberate act. But the conclusion ultimately was that this is a horrible, horrible industrial accident. Likely, right? likely, 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 likely. Okay. Yeah. All, all the evidence that we saw uh, indicated it was a horrible, horrible industrial accident. Mm. Um, and I found like in when horrific events like this take place, uh, sometimes there is a key point at which putting out a piece of information which is reliable and uh, clearly demonstrates our conclusions, supports our conclusions, can have a really beneficial effect on the information environment. Um, so I think the Beirut piece is a good example of that. I also think uh, some other work we've done, the New Zealand uh, shooter, where we pointed out that the manifesto that he shared was basically one big trap. Um, and the idea was to, you know, there was all kind of whimsical stuff in the end. The idea was to try and get journalists to republish parts of the manifesto. Um, and I think those kind of rapid, open and reliable articles that we can publish in the event or immediately after these kind of incidents is something that we do quite well and how, how much is it a collaborative effort because you know you, you're pulling in lots of different types of information in that kind of scenario where you've got all the visual content you're looking at you're going and speaking to people we also sort of then trying to obviously looking at, you're comparing it to i guess maps and no doubt existing satellite imagery to figure out like you said okay so the fire started over here we can identify that part of the warehouse from the images we're seeing etc there's a lot of visual components there but what are the, what other elements were you, were you adding in and, and and to what extent is it collaborative because it's not just presumably it's not just you doing all of this work you're, you're relying on others helping out as well and and are they bringing specialist skills to this as well and so initially uh, in terms of like the collaborative aspect um i already talked about how you know this affected a wide network of journalists activists pretty much everyone who lives in Beirut, but also uh, like the wider kind of journalistic network. Um, and so everyone's trying to, to talk to each other to, you know, if they find like a interesting video, they'll repost it, you know, say, hey, look at this, this is interesting. Um, so that's the kind of wider network um, is just trying to spread information throughout that network. Um, and then, yeah, within Bellingcat, it will be more uh, within our kind of workspace, it'll be more uh, a little bit tighter. Um, we'll look at, say, specific videos because it shows something interesting. Um, you know, geolocating those videos, and then we'll take that information and put it put it into the article. So yes, it is a collaborative process from, you know, gathering down to the the analysis. Um, in terms of combining it with other information, um, I mean, primarily it's uh, geographical information. Um, I mean, you're looking at what has happened, um, and in those kind of instances, uh, in-depth analysis probably won't be possible until later on. Um, so what you're trying to do is establish like the kind of basic facts, you know, what happened and where. Um, it, it became pretty evident, though, that, I mean, just looking at some of the videos that, you know, some of the damage was happening, uh, severe damage was happening hundreds or had happened hundreds and hundreds of meters away from the, the epicenter of the explosion. So, it, I mean, 
yeah, even immediately after the explosion, it's very clear that this was a gigantic and powerful explosion. Mm. And, and what, what, is, what, what then follows on from that? What, I mean, where, where do you go next with that? Once you've got that initial piece up, how do you follow up on it? What, what additional work do you guys do at Bellingcat to add depth to it? Um, so it depends. I think in this case, we uh, there was some very interesting uh, analysis looking at you know where the ammonium nitrate came from, um, the companies that were involved, that kind of stuff. That I think we could probably could have looked at in more more detail and and done it quite well, um, but we didn't really have the resources to do that at the time. And so I think other um, other journalists and organisations did that that very well um in, instead of us so i think that's something we could have done but we chose not to because we didn't have enough resources at the time um what we did do is uh within a couple of days we noticed that uh, a couple of fake videos have started to emerge um people were talking about the jet sound um quite a bit some people were claiming that you know you know on the cctv video you see someone pointing up in the sky and someone's claiming that they're at jets that kind of stuff mm-hmm. um and i decided to write something on that when i had uh friends who were you know lebanese or had family in lebanon who were started to like post stuff around on whatsapp groups and they started to say hey yeah my uncle or my grandfather like sent me this video saying that shows an israeli missile strike and at that point it became pretty clear that it was necessary to look at some of these videos and uh when it became very very clear very rapidly they were fake to to debunk them um yeah and and some of these you know i'm sure many people would have seen these um sort of fake images and things like that again what, what's your process there in terms of debunking that and and, and identify you know, obviously identifying that content is relatively straightforward because you're seeing it coming through on the streams and whatsapp chats etc but uh where do you go with that and you know you take it look at it and then how do you pick it apart yeah um I mean, like the thing is with, have you ever heard the phrase, there's no such thing as a good fake? <laughs> I haven't actually, no. <laughs> so people talk about fakes all the time as if it's like the end of our ability to interpret videos and images as if they're they're useful bits of information. Yeah, um, well, especially when people start talking about things like these deep fake videos, and things like this. Yeah, yeah. But the reality is like... Actually, if you pay even a modicum of attention, they're not actually too difficult to to see if they're fake. Um, the vast majority of uh, the kind of fake information or disinformation that we um, deal with or that you see after these kind of incidents are videos from other events that someone has taken and then posted. Um, usually it's just some random person who wants to, you know, get a whole load of retweets and likes. And so it's taken a completely different video and, and reposted saying, you know, it's exclusive footage of the event. Um the fakes that we saw off the Beirut were probably the first time I've seen anyone actually try and really comprehensively try and actually fake an event. Um, there were three videos, uh, or yeah, three main videos, four videos if you count one that had less circulation. Two of them showed uh, it was quite clearly a bird um, flying across the screen and then behind a building and then the explosion happening. I mean, it was pretty clear because one, you couldn't see. Uh, in general, you couldn't see a missile in any of the other videos. And two, because it was flapping. Um, <laughs> and then <laughs> and then the other two videos, someone had taken a cartoon missile and then superimposed it on two genuine videos that had been posted. Um, and I, it was 
it was a cartoon missile. I, it was like it was absurd. But because it's only on screen for like three frames, you know, if you watch it on your mobile phone and maybe you're not you haven't looked at the other videos or you're not really familiar about what has happened, you know, it's very easy to look at that video and say, hey, actually, that's what happened. So debunking it or it just makes debunking actually really easy. Yeah. So we went through and debunked the videos, um, showed what they could be. And usually I don't think I'd usually engage in that kind of debunking because I don't think a lot of the time I don't think it's that effective. Um, I'm not sure how effective fact checks actually are. You know, if you if you take an article from like Snopes and then showed it to a diehard Trump supporter or a QAnon fan, like, you know, that they just believe that Snopes is part of the conspiracy. Like it's um, right. it's a kind of difficult thing to engage in. And so you have to make sure that you do it properly, that you debunk them in, in their entirety. You know, I don't want to post a video on there and say, you know, I don't think this is real, but maybe it is uh, because that creates doubt and yeah. it's not particularly useful. And I think it poisons the information space. But I think in this case, it was necessary and possible because all four examples that we looked at were clearly not true um, right. and very clearly and demonstrably not true. You know, the fact that you could put it as a headline, you know, this is a cartoon missile. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, it helps to debunk that because. You know, it, OK, so if someone took our article and showed it to someone who genuinely believed this, they could say, well, I don't believe Bellingcat. You know, they are uh, a tool of the Western imperialist government. Um, but when someone says points out to them, hey, but actually the video that you shows shows Israeli airstrike is actually a cartoon missile. Um, that I think actually is like to have much more of an effect because it's just stupid and absurd. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think but, it's kind of expose this information in a way that shows how blatant it is that where that is where that kind of fact checking debunking can become useful interesting and so, you know even with that example which is ridiculous somebody's still gone to the effort of putting that together and posting it and out putting it out there and so you know how far do you go in terms of debunking these things to you know do you go as far as trying to work out who's behind it and why and you know are they just trying to stir the pot or you know are they just trying to get something to go viral for the hell of it or are they actually doing something deliberate which is uh you know ha has some sort of malign intent behind it yeah so that's that's a really interesting question i think there is a uh, threshold at which it is useful to do that um but the vast majority of the time it is not worth going over that threshold because it involves a lot of digging um indeed it may be precisely what that person wants so in one of the videos that we looked at it had a um email address uh superimposed in or not superimposed i beg your pardon uh watermarked mm -hmm. over the video um and we chose to actually blur that gmail address because it may be in the case someone wanted this uh, video to go viral in order to expose this email address for a particular reason mm. um, so we chose not to uh, not to or we chose to to blur that email address mm. um, that so for the videos wasn't worth it um, there was one particular interesting uh, one particularly interesting uh, piece of information that came out of it, which I, I think would be interesting to look at further in depth, but we chose not to because, again, we don't have the resources. Um, There's a website um, which, uh, or a web page that's being passed around saying that this ammonium nitrate 
had been offloaded and then had been uh, was being carted across the border into Syria to be sold to uh, rebel force in Syria um, back in 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, but the issue with that page is that there were all kinds of things that were just slightly wrong with it. Um, like the font was wrong. The font size, I beg your pardon, was wrong. Um, the the title colors were, were different from all the other articles that had certainly been posted in 2013. So although this article seemed uh, like the URL, uh, the uh, date on the page indicated to me published in 2013, there are lots of things that actually shows that it probably wasn't. And so that is something that I find really interesting because, you know, who's gone through the trouble to write up this fake article, post it on this defunct news website, make it look like it was published in 2013 or whenever it was. Uh, I think it was 2013. That, for me, is far more interesting than the fake videos. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. That yeah. does sound like it's quite sophisticated. Well, not sophisticated necessarily, but it's taken a bit more thought. Uh, yeah, precisely. It's like mm. this isn't just someone who's taken another video, whacked a filter on it and a mm. cartoon missile. You know, someone has put in a lot of effort into trying to make this look genuine, even though, again, no such thing as a good fake. Or it's very <laughs> difficult to make a good fake. There are certain things that were were noticeably incorrect about it. Mm. But that, that article in particular was, was quite interesting to me. But I think it'd be very difficult to work out who and why that was posted. We, were you able to sort of using archive sort of resources look at uh, and, and establish straight away actually this has only just gone online recently it, has, it wasn't originally published in 2013 yeah but nothing nothing conclusive which is very mm. very frustrating the thing that really stuck out to me was the fact that if you look through like through a bunch of the other articles from this website um and you know it's a particular font font size um and they had the heading subheading in particular colors um and that was all wrong for this actual article so, you know, you go through the kind of 10 articles and I think the website actually stopped publishing like two weeks after that uh, or after the reported date that this um, story had been posted, which is, a you know. Um, and so, like, for me, those, uh, yeah, it's interesting, but we couldn't find or we couldn't quite find anything conclusive. I think we we still have people actually looking at it because it's still an interesting case study, especially in terms of uh, using archiving um and those kind of tells to work out if something actually has been posted at the time it said it had been but yeah so there may be more to come on that on the bellingcat website in a couple of weeks time all right we'll look out for that um in terms of other work then around that the incident of the explosion i mean you know obviously there's it, it generated such interest and so much focus and people looking in, uh, at it and investigating did you guys do any further work around investigating okay well how did all this ammonium nitrate get there and where you know who is going to be looking after it? And that's sort of, you know, that kind of extra detail to figure out was it an accident or was it deliberate? We did a little bit, but at that point, other people already started yeah. like, really digging into it. Um, as I already said, like at that time, like our resources at the moment, yeah, yeah our resources spread quite thin, so no one really had the time to do it. And also at that point, you you started getting specialists stepping in. So people who really knew Beirut and the ins and outs of the local government, who really knew, you know, shipping manifests. Um, and at that point, you know, other investigative journalists started doing that probably more effectively than we could. So, yeah, it was it was a case of like, we don't really have the resources. Other people are probably going to do it better than we are. Fair enough. Yeah. And um, beyond that case, then what's uh, what's next uh, for you and, and, you know, coming up next at Bellingcat? What are you working on since then? And what else has been brewing? 
Difficult to say. Um, I've been working on a project at the moment that that is quite interesting. Unfortunately, I can't really talk that much about it. Oh, uh, you're just teasing us now. <laughs> yeah, it, it's slightly more niche. I know. So in March of this year, we looked at events on the greek turkish border and concluded that Greek soldiers had likely uh, shot migrants on, on this border on the 4th of March. So there's other stuff that's tangentially related to that, that that should be coming out in a couple of months' time. We're also looking at, uh, last year we did a lot of work looking at airstrikes in Syria, sorry, I beg your pardon, airstrikes in Yemen. And that was uh, with the intent of using that open source information uh, potentially as evidence in court. In a few weeks' time, we should be doing a, we are doing a mock trial, um, which should be open for registration. So if anyone is kind of interested to see what open source analysts up in court incredibly scared looks like and uh, should be able to register for that so everyone can register for that on the bellingcat website yeah i should think so i'll, I'll make sure it's, it's posted on the bellingcat social media feeds might post mm. something on the bellingcat uh, yeah. website um that's i mean that's really interesting because i think that's an interesting area for open source intelligence and open source investigative journalism to be getting into because the way that i think open source information is sometimes viewed is that it, it can be unreliable or it because it's so unstructured and because it's so varied and there's so much of it out there and you know as we've discussed you know fake content etc so there is always that question mark around okay well how reliable is it so being able to use it as evidence for court cases i mean that's it's it's a huge thing and i think um anything that helps towards that and helps demonstrate the value of open source in, intelligence for for court cases and for evidential information is useful and there's i know there's been case studies in the past where it's been used etc and and there's been some successful prosecutions for things like war crimes etc um but it seems like that's still an area that needs further development and so yeah it sounds interesting that you're doing that sort of mock trial is there more you can tell us about that i think so yeah i mean so it's, it's a mock trial it's testing how this evidence would be looked at both by prosecution by defense i primarily focus on an airstrike that took place in uh, Sana'a in Yemen, uh, which hit the office of the presidency, middle of the city, uh, wounded and killed other people who were external to the office of the presidency. Um, and it, it's quite an interesting case because, again, it's an event that took place in a city, so there's quite a lot of corroborating information and evidence around it. So, you know, we're not starting with like a single shaky handheld video in the middle of nowhere, which is not corroborated by their images and videos but rather something that that can be supported by other information but it, it's especially useful because you know we don't know who filmed this it's very clear what this event shows but we don't know who filmed this or you know well it's pretty clear why they filmed it um so i'll basically be taking the place of or yeah the team of bellingcat will basically be taking the place of the person who filmed this video to say this is what it shows um, so usually in court, you have the person who filmed it stand up and say, yeah, I filmed this video on this date at this time and it shows this. And that's effectively what the Bellingcat team is doing instead. Um, so we're saying, you know, this video shows this and that means uh, and we're confident it shows this because this, this and this. So it's going to be quite an interesting test of things like geolocation, crone location, using shadows to establish time, that kind of stuff. And so some of those skills you mentioned there, geolocation, chronolocation, presumably looking at that sort of visual analysis of, of videos and, and being, or, or more, I suppose, more technical analysis as well at times of videos where, you know, as you described with that one in Beirut, where you've got to almost slow it down frame by frame to see what's been inserted in there. Um, you know, that combination of skills is, is, is relatively specialised. Is that, you know, for you, has it been 
difficult over the years to develop those skills and you know any tips you would give to somebody who's starting out in the field maybe to is that you know to what extent is that a big part of your job versus looking at other types of information for instance yes yeah, it's, it's a pretty big part of my job uh yeah it depends if i'm like actually doing kind of project work looking at like a series of events like airstrikes in yemen last year uh like that's kind of bread and butter of what we do and i guess you've got to be practicing that day in day out really to be skilled at doing it because like i said i mean it, it's relatively specialized and it's not something that i think everyone can just pick up that easily or i know you can train people to do it but they've still got to then practice those skills right yes i think most people can can do it i don't think it takes too much effort or or particular skill to be honest you know just being uh, modest <laughs> i mean like we've taught like hundreds and hundreds of people in our, right. our workshops and you know you can get someone who's if people who are like virtually tech or illiterate <laughs> kind of like trying to work out how to use like google earth or like google maps and you know although they may take a little bit longer they can still carry out geolocations it, it's really about uh, a mess of thinking about being spatially aware about imagination and imagining how you know an image would look from like a bird's eye view I wouldn't say it's it's I mean it is a technical skill but it is not something that you know you have to go to like coding base camp for right. 3 days to learn for example um and if you find it interesting and enthusiastic about it um I don't think it's too too difficult to start playing around look at your own pictures pictures of your friends and work out where you where they are yeah. oh and <laughs> if you want to try it out for yourself there's always a geoguesser as well um I don't know if you're familiar with uh, GeoGuessr, but it's a game online which will drop you somewhere in the world on Google Street View, and you have to guess where you are. Um, Interesting. Various not, different modes you can play, but yeah. Uh, okay, yeah, I've not tried it. I know there's a, there's a lot of people who post images daily, sort of on Twitter and elsewhere, and say, okay, here you go, here's today's test, figure out whatever where it is, and so there's plenty of opportunities for people, for people to practice. Yeah, mm. yeah, absolutely. And so um, within the work you're doing and the work at Bellingcat, you know, how do you decide what your priorities are? And, you know, do you, how do you determine what is next? Yeah. So this has changed quite a lot over the last kind of two, three years. Um, three years ago, the majority of us were, were volunteers. Um, so we basically did whatever we wanted, whatever was of interest. I think the, the closer Elliot ever, Elliot ever got to actually telling anyone to write an article was saying, posting something or a link to something and then saying, hey, this looks interesting. Um <laughs> now it's slightly different we have funding for specific projects so for example training uh, journalists in central asia for example so some people do that uh, last year you know we we spent a lot of time again looking at these airstrikes in yemen this year again we've been doing this stuff looking at the greek turkish border so at the moment it's kind of project focused but we've still got a lot of flexibility left over from a couple of years ago so if i wanted to do something and i thought it was important i would just go to elliot and say hey just to give you a heads up, I'm not going to be doing my normal stuff. I'm going to be doing this because I think it's really important because this. And the Beirut stuff is a perfect example of that. You know, that wasn't part of what we we're doing in terms of any kind of projects, but it was clearly a very important thing to write about. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for agreeing to come on and, and talk about some of your work and especially that case study, which, you know, because it's such a big event and developed so rapidly and had such a big human impact in terms of everyone living in Beirut and all the victims, you know, and there was such a huge rush of information to try and sift through and, and, and get on top of it. It's really interesting to hear how you went about it and how you sort of pieced together what happened and when and where and, and, and then worked it out from there. So thanks for sharing your thoughts, Nick. Cool. Yeah, no dramas at all. 
Yeah, well, good luck with the mock trial and everything else. And uh, yeah, we'll look forward to sort of catching up on the updates on the Bellingcat website. Cool. Awesome. Thanks very much.